0: Hi there, and welcome to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Today, I'm delighted to talk with Professor Lori Meeks of the University of Southern California about her new book, Hokkeiji and the Reemergence of Female Monastic Orders in Premodern Japan. This book looks at a period of Japanese history called the Kamakura Era that lasted from about 1185 to 1333. It's a fascinating period of history for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that this is when a lot of people think that Japanese Buddhism really came into its own, when Japanese Buddhism really became Japanese. Now, that's an assumption that's often overstated, but it is nevertheless true that a lot of really interesting things were happening during this period, and Professor Meeks looks at one interesting story, that of a convent called Hokkeji. Originally founded in the 7th century, Hokkeji declined its significance until it re in the 13th century as not only a pretty important pilgrimage site, but also the site of a re-established monastic center for women. Buddhism, like a lot of religions, has some pretty androcentric rhetoric. One would be right to say that it's as patriarchal as any other institutional religion. But Professor Meeks' study challenges some of the assumptions and biases of previous scholarship to show how women were able to assert their own autonomy and talk past this rhetoric in some pretty interesting ways. It's a great book. I had a great talk with Professor Meeks. So, without further ado, here's the interview. Uh, hello and welcome to the new Books in Buddhist Studies show. Uh, today we're talking with Laurie Meeks of the University of Southern California about her book, Hokage and the Reemergence of Female Monastic Orders in Pre-Modern Japan. Um, it's a great book. It's a really fascinating look at a pretty interesting time in Japanese Buddhist history, and I highly recommend it. And I'm delighted to be talking with the author today. Thanks so much for joining us, Laurie. Um, how are you?
1: Great. Thank you for, for inviting me to do this interview today. Very grateful for the opportunity.
0: My pleasure. Um, so as we uh, get started, I thought we'd start off by asking just, um, you know, ha- a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying Buddhism um, in general, but also in this particular topic.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, well, I uh, first became interested in the study of Buddhism um largely through an interest in religious studies, um, and largely because I was trying to make sense of my own religious upbringing, I grew up in a Southern Baptist family, uh, mm. Southern Baptist community that was that was pretty conservative. and um, I think growing up, I was really frustrated by the fact that there were so few female role models in the church. Um, it was made major- very clear that women weren't allowed to have any leadership roles in the church. Um, even though there were a lot of very talented women in the community who were interested in serving in some kind of, uh, public way. Um, and so I think I've had this kind of longstanding interest in the relationship between, uh, gender and institutional religions, um, or institutionalized religions. Um, and in, in college I, I started out pre-med and I guess like many people uh, started out pre-med and uh found that I really enjoyed the religious studies classes more than uh chemistry and biology and so on. Um and so I ended up in all these religious studies classes and finally uh realized that that uh that I thought I could could spend uh my career doing this, reading reading books about religion and researching religion. Um and I think Uh, Buddhism was attractive to me in the beginning because it was so different from what I had grown up with and initially it seemed like this tradition that was much more um, flexible in in terms of certain doctrines not being um, uh, not being as rigidly applied in social situations and so on Um, and of of course uh, a lot of my early idealism about uh, Buddhism kind of faded as I learned more about it Um, but uh a, a lot of a lot of that attraction is, is still there. And um I you know, I think that it was I, I was just very interested in Buddhist philosophy early on. Um and then my desire to go on and study the relationship between women and Buddhism in particular, uh kind of came out of this this larger interest in the relationship between women and uh and religious organizations more broadly, and trying to understand uh, how it was that uh, so many ins- religious institutions had managed to keep women out of, of uh, leadership positions and so on. And I think I wanted to see what what the situation looked like in, in Buddhist orders. Um, and uh, my interest in Japan sort of came came from a, a different part of my life. I was able to uh, spend a summer Uh, in Japan as a uh, not an exchange exactly but as a home on a homestay uh, exchange program um, for six weeks and just sort of fell in love with it it was my first time outside of the Midwest really Um, and uh, became interested in studying Japanese after that so I started Japanese in college and loved the language classes and then just kind of managed to put that interest together with this interest in in religion um, and women's studies so (laughs) do you want me to say a little bit more about the sort of transition into talking about the topic of the book or?
0: Um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. From there. Go ahead. Um, uh, um, is, is this book part of your dissertation research? Did I get that from the, the, the sleeve somewhere?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, um, it was sort of an expansion of the dissertation, um, but definitely came out of, of the same, the same interest and the same initial research. Um, the the choice to study this particular period of Japanese Buddhism in many ways reflects larger trends in the field, mm-hmm. um, as I'm as I'm sure you're aware that it's, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty popular the, area. <laughs> yeah, it's in in Japanese Buddhist studies, the Kamakura period has long been sort of the most popular period to study, uh, because there was uh, for so long this idea that um, that uh, this was the period when Japanese Buddhism became Japanese and uh, this is the period when Japan sort of contributed something new to, uh, to Buddhism. Um, and a lot of those ideas have been dispelled by now, but still it's a, it's a period that attracts a lot of attention. Um, and I think, uh, it was because there was so much writing in English probably on this period and writing in Japanese on this period that I first became interested in the Kamakura, um, period. But, uh, I guess I was I was interested in in studying women's roles in Buddhism and especially in understanding uh how women interpreted and made sense of doctrines about women doctrines about gender doctrines about um what women had to do to gain salvation and so on um and I sort of stumbled upon the Hokke Metodaiji Engi which was one of the texts that I talk about a lot in the book um this was a temple origin, origin narrative, so a, a, a narrative that tells about um, the founding of Hokkeji in, in somewhat mythological terms, describing uh, miracles associated with this convent Hokeji, um describing its revival in the 13th century, um, celebrating its female founder, Empress Komyo or Queen Consort Komyo. Um, and what I discovered in, in this engi, which I, I found a reference to it in a footnote, and it hadn't been this the center of of any major study in Japanese. People referred to it, but no one sort of took it, this particular text as the main object of study. Right, right. Um, and in, in reading through it and sort of spending time studying it, I realized it was a very different view of, it presented a very different view of how women actually made sense of Buddhism and practiced Buddhism. Uh-huh. Um, this was a text that, doesn't talk at all about the obstacles women face on the Buddhist path. It doesn't talk about women in any kind of derogatory way, um, as many of the doctrinal texts uh, of the period do. Um, but instead, it, it it celebrates this founder of, of Hokeji as a kind of divine figure, as a model of religious practice for women. Um, and so I, I guess came up with this idea that through looking at texts like this, um i could explore the relationship between buddhism and women in the kamakura period uh from a different angle and i wanted to see where that would take me um if we began to look at a text other than the commentaries and uh sutras studied by male monks would we uh, begin to understand this relationship differently
0: the sort of usual suspects <laughs> of uh, yeah yeah <laughs> um so so uh on that note let's sort of like take a step back for a second um because I think that some of our listeners you know uh like you like you were saying in the beginning you know we have some uh, ideas about or some uh, beliefs about Buddhism as being different from uh more conservative kinds of religions um some mm. Uh, ideas that you've had were dispelled in your studies (laughs) that i think happens to a lot of us (laughs) um but uh, to just sort of uh to sort of set the stage here there there are clear differences in how men and women uh or or monks and nuns are supposed to um, approach buddhism and different ideas about how women May not be able to attain enlightenment or different ideas about women's bodies. Um, so, as, as some of the background to some of the issues that you're dealing with, I uh, was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those differences between men and women, or how, in some of those, uh, the the commentary texts you talk about that monks write, um, how they problematize women's bodies and, and whatnot, and, and sort of sort of set that stage for where your book, I think, you know, takes some interesting perspectives.
1: Sure, thank you. Um- Well, I guess there are um, a couple of different trends that are very in in, within Buddhist doctrinal texts that are important for understanding um, how Buddhist doctrine and and sort of orthodox Buddhist texts tend to view women. Um, One is uh, the idea that a female birth is is a lower birth in in the uh, in in the in the possible. Types of birth one can achieve. Um, so, of course, we have this idea in Buddhism, in East Asian Buddhism, it was usually the six realms of rebirth. Um, the human, with the human realm uh, being the lower of the three higher realms. Um, and within the human realm, of course, there was this idea that depending upon your karma from past lives, you could either be, or you could not either. It's not either or, but you could be born. Um, in a wealthy family, as a beautiful person, as a man, as someone who uh, would be born into a position that would allow him to become a Buddhist priest, for example, or one could be born um, in a family of very, uh, very little means, if a, a poor family. One could be born um, without the, the sort of luxury of studying Buddhism. One could be born um in, in a female body and so on. So there are all these different possibilities, and a female body was was seen as being a lower birth. And this is something that comes up in, in a lot of Indian texts, not just in, in Buddhist texts, but it's it's uh, said again and again in Buddhist texts. So it's made <laughs> clear that um, a, a birth as a woman is not an ideal birth. Being born as, a, I mean, it's, it's great that you're born in the human realm, so it's, it, it could always it's be worse up, when you're to but... <laughs> female. Or female in the hell realms or something like that um but there is this idea that uh inherently women are of lower birth and than, than men and so this reflects that they have uh less uh karmic merit from their past lives than do uh men living at the same time um so that idea runs throughout buddhist text and is invoked frequently when um Buddhist Buddhist monks um, are talking about uh, women's salvation. And then another sort of important trend we find in Buddhist discourse is um, the notion that uh, women are a distraction to male monastic mm-hmm. practice, that women are temptresses, they look beautiful on the outside, they will um, threaten to take men who are supposed to be celibate as Buddhist practitioners away from the true path, um, that this this beauty will kind of trick them I mean, and inherently or if we look deeper uh we find that this beauty is in fact fleeting it's something that women use as a as a trick to pull men off the Buddhist path and so on so there's also a lot of discourse in that vein uh talking about women as temptresses and and usually that discourse was meant for uh monastic communities it wasn't uh, a kind of discourse that was meant to I mean, this is something at least I, I find in a lot of um, the Japanese texts. We don't see many monks talking to, to say, uh, female lay patrons mm-hmm. uh, about this notion that women are temptresses. It's really a discourse that's meant uh, probably for a male monastic audience. Um, but it is there and it does have um, it, it's repeated again and again uh, throughout uh, Buddhist doctrinal sources. So uh, those. Those, those views um, very much shaped especially the way that monastic communities uh, viewed women. And there were specific doctrines that, that I talk about in the book that had become um, very well known um, in Japanese monastic discourse and among uh, the more elite and educated uh, lay patrons um, in medieval Japan. And, and these are doctrines um, or ideas that come up, especially in places like the Lotus Sutra, they come up in a lot of Mahayana literature. Um, one is the notion that there are five particular um, ranks in the Buddhist cosmos that a woman can't that can't be achieved in a woman's body. Um, and one of these, the fifth, is that of a Buddha. So this notion that a woman cannot uh, achieve buddhahood in a female body uh, is emphasized in this this idea of the five obstacles Um, and there was another uh, concept known as the three obediences or the thrice following um, which said that women were to follow men throughout their lives their fathers when they were young their husbands when they're middle-aged and their sons when they're older this idea can actually be traced back to the laws of manu um, Uh in and, uh, a text that becomes important in what's later known as Hinduism, um, but it's also picked up or uh, repeated a lot in Confucian texts, and it becomes part of a kind of standard discourse on uh, women in Japanese doctrinal texts by the Heian period. Um, right. So those I- I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. So we have those ideas. And then what, finally, I wanted to mention one more. There's this notion that uh, women need to seek uh, rebirth into a male body if they want to attain salvation um, or attain Buddhahood. Um, and so there were actually um, some esoteric practices that, that we can find some mention of in early Japanese, well, maybe hand hand texts uh, that talk about particular methods women can uh, can try to practice in order to attain birth in a male body, and this is something that uh, a number of medieval monks pick up on as well these teachings on how to achieve birth in a male body
0: right right so so I got the impression that in in your book that you mentioned it seems like some of these ideas came into Japanese Buddhism after Buddhism was already in Japan and and I, I remember at one point you mentioned something about that that almost like women and, and monks had to be taught that women 's Uh, place was sort of subordinate or that women's bodies were somehow defiled. So was this, is it fair to say that some of these ideas were somewhat late in terms of the history of Buddhism in Japan? I think
1: it's, it's largely a matter of of how they were disseminated and when and to, to what groups sort of how they spread and what the methods of transmission were. I think, I think that a lot of these ideas, um, would have been known among uh, elite monks rather early on, say during the Heian period, but that they don't really spread outside of monastic communities until a bit later on. Um, and that it's not really until the Kamakura period that we see a lot of monks actively teaching women about these particular doctrines of women's salvation. Uh, that in the Heian period, there there was this. Um, there was a growth in practices um, connected with with esoteric Buddhist centers. Uh, a growth in practices meant to uh, keep women out of uh, sacred sacred spaces um, like Mount Hiei and Mount Koya, um, centers of of esoteric Buddhism. Um, so there there were certain elite women who knew that the monks at these esoteric centers didn't want women to be in those sacred spaces, but they didn't know a lot about, I don't think they knew a lot about uh, the reasons behind that. Um, and I think it wasn't until the Kamakura period that monks were really actively teaching women why, why they were defiled or why they needed special help in order to gain salvation. And so on. if we look at the hand sources, even those esoteric uh, priests who don't want women to climb the sacred mountains, um, they're still, still willing to take on female patrons down in the city um, and to perform special rites for women and so on. And it, it seems that usually when those monks were uh, interacting with female patrons, they tended to tell those female patrons what the female patrons wanted to hear, to emphasize uh, what they could offer those women rather than to tell them, hey, look, uh, actually, we we think you're defiled and you need this and that. And it doesn't seem to be until the Kamakura period that monks are kind of or maybe even the maybe the late Han period that we have people like Conan who are actively telling women, um, look, as a woman you have special uh, you have special soteriological needs and we can fill them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's mostly a matter of spread. That in the in the Han period there certainly was knowledge of these discourses, but I don't think that that knowledge was as widely disseminated among. Um, the population as it as it becomes in the Kamakura periods and later,
0: right, right. So, so your your book focuses mostly on uh, this one particular convent called Hokeji, um, that gets sort of reestablished in the Kamakura period. But you said that um, it was uh, a, a, a somewhat important uh, center before that, correct? And that it had sort of uh, declined in significance, and, and that's part of the story. And so. Uh, you know, can you say a little bit more about what this particular convent was and when it was established and how it, it sort of declined and the circumstances that led to its uh, reemergence, which I think is the, the heart of your book that is that we're getting to.
1: <laughs> sure, absolutely. So, so Hokeji was originally established uh, by a woman known as Queen Consort Komyo, popularly known as Empress Komio. Uh, she was the the consort and and many say the co-ruler of Emperor Shomu, um, who was uh, an important emperor in in the uh, 8th century. And um, one of the uh, acts of Buddhist patronage that uh, Komyo and Shomu uh, enacted during their reign uh, was to create monastic uh, temple nunnery pairs in each of of the provinces of Japan at that time. It's not known, we don't have evidence that these were actually built in every province, Mm -hmm. but it does look like they were built in many more provinces than was previously uh, thought. Um, So many of these do appear to have been built. Um, And the idea originally was that these would be places where um, monks and nuns would say prayers for uh, the success of the protection of the state, basically the success and protection of the state. Um, And Hokkeji was the nunnery of the, of the main nunnery uh, monastery pair uh, in, in the central province in Yamato. Um, And so it was seen as kind of the head of this uh, large network of convents throughout Japan. Um, We don't know a lot about how it functioned in, in, in that period when it was first established in the 8th century. Um, but there do appear to have been many nuns who were active there. At that time, uh, nuns were able to gain official ordination uh, through the state. Uh, they were were regarded as uh, bureaucrats of the state, so they received um, stipends from the state, and this, this was a... Uh, was a period when, when nuns were, were seemed to have been held in high regard by the state. Um huh. that didn't last for too long. Um we know that the the last ordination of nuns took place um sometime in the ninth century. Um and then after that there we have no more records of women receiving official ordination as as full-fledged bhikkhuni or bhikshuni. Um until uh Hokiji is revived in the 13th century. And at that time, the ordination, uh, the methods of ordination have changed to a great, great extent. Um, and when the nuns are being um, ordained again in the 13th century, they're being ordained by Ason and his group uh, who are giving... Uh, Bikuni ordinations, but they're not using um, official certificates from the state. So it does become—it's a there—it's the revival of this official ordination system, but the the authenticity is no longer coming through the state. Um, so it is—it's a very different system in the 13th century. Um, but uh, basically. What we know is that the or, the official ordination of women stopped sometime during the 19th of the 9th century that is not revived again until the 13th and during that period in between um, Holkeji appears to have gone through uh, sort of waves of, of neglect and then sort of mini revivals if you will there appear to have been women who were kind of taking care of of uh, the temple and the and its grounds and some of the the main images uh, are of the images that were stored there and so on, um, but we we don't have a lot of detail about what exactly was going on there. It's just mentioned here and there in, in various records, and um, I go through a lot of those details.
0: And you mentioned there were like privately uh, privately confessed nuns, is, is how you describe them, women who would have sort of yes sort of self-proclaimed themselves as nuns, but weren't officially recognized by any, either state or Buddhist uh, orthodoxy. For lack right. Of
1: so these, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's sort of a, a mix of, I guess, of levels of, ha- of you know, the degree to which they were actually recognized. We no longer had, after the ninth century, there are no longer women who are receiving uh, sort of state-authorized, bhikkhuni ordinations where they're taking hundreds of precepts um but we do have a lot of women who in some places i called them lay nuns or privately professed nuns women who usually have taken the bodhisattva precepts mm-hmm. um and have uh changed their dress and outward appearance so they look like nuns um and have devoted themselves to daily Buddhist practice and so on, may live in, in a place like, at a place like Hokeji, um and uh, teach lay pilgrims about the temple or about, you know, general Buddhist concepts and so on. Um, and, you know, actually there were a lot of men at, during this period who, who, became what we might call sort of lay monks. And there's a sort of sliding scale of, <laughs> of monastic commitment. And, and during this period, especially during the ham period, especially, um, and Kamakura as well, it was very common for um, people upon their retirement um, or, or, or perhaps after after uh, their kids had left home and, and uh, they were starting to think about um, preparing, really preparing for death in many ways, um, that it was very common for people to kind of retire from lay life and take some kind of precepts. And and very frequently that didn't mean taking full-fledged um, precepts as a monk or a nun, but something around the level of novice precepts or the bodhisattva precepts. Um, and they would commit themselves to Buddhist practice, but uh, wouldn't have been regarded by the state as... Um, official sort of monastic bureaucrats. Um, and uh, so in some ways, what, what the women who were living at Hokkeji during this intermittent period were doing was not that different from what a lot of men were doing. It's just that they didn't have the option of going further and taking more precepts, and, and men did have that option. Mm-hmm. Um but we think that right before Hokkeji was revived in the thirteenth century, there were a number of women living there who who had uh, taken probably the Bodhisattva precepts um, from from uh, monks in the area and uh, were living in Hokeji, taking care of the main image, which was an image of the eleven uh, faced kanon um, and this was popularly understood as um, an image that was created in the likeness of Empress Comio. So this image stood both for uh, Kanon and for Comio herself. Um, they took care of this image and uh, would tell uh, pilgrims who would come to Hokkeji on pilgrimage about the miracles associated with Comio and Kanon there. Um, so it's I, I think that they were kind of at the heart of this of this revival when it when it finally happened in the 13th century
0: right right i got the impression that um previous scholarship has sort of given a lot of credit to the the monk ason as being the person who um really revived the the uh the monastic order there at Hokeji, but um it seems like you're suggesting it's a bit more complicated than that <laughs> it wasn't all just his doing um and and you highlight some other important figures in in the story and other 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 ways that the 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 convent became important like the the statue of uh uh canon um and and that became a pilgrimage site so um so, so what were some of the events that were happening here uh, in addition to Aeson? I mean, Aeson is obviously important. So, um, you know, tell us a bit more about him and, and why his, his, his role is important, but also some of the other factors that were going on and, and, uh, the other important people, particularly the women involved. <laughs> oh,
1: thank you. Well, um, Aeson, Aeson is a really interesting figure. Um, he, was very he, his main interest was in reviving uh, the Vinaya precepts, and he felt that um, the Japanese Buddhist order was essentially inauthentic. And I think much of of what he was critiquing was um, the Kenmitsu orthodoxy of the day. So he was critiquing um, the Shingon establishment and. Um, the Tendai establishment, I think, but doing mm-hmm. this. I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't making sort of outright critiques of them, but but was talking about how, in in general, um, Japanese Buddhists didn't follow uh, the Vinaya correctly, and for this reason, the Buddhist order in Japan wasn't all that authentic. Um, and this was actually part of a larger um, trend that was taking place in Nara, um, this old capital. And then I talk in the beginning of the book how it, the by the beginning of the Heian period, uh, a lot of the important Buddhist centers had moved to this new capital of Heiankyo, and Nara, in many ways, felt kind of left behind. (laughs) So by the Kamakura period, this is in some ways even uh, more more strongly felt, perhaps. Um, But there was this revival in Nara um, that was very much centered around Vinaya practice, and I think this idea that... um, what Nara could contribute, the city of Nara and its monastic communities could contribute to Japanese Buddhism was a revitalization of the monastic law, that this was kind of a going back to the basics. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the priests um, active in Ason's group were looking towards China, and they were trying to um, evaluate the degree to which Japanese Buddhism um, had failed to implement um, a lot of Buddhist Buddhist practices as they were carried out in China. And so I think there was this kind of comparison that a lot of these uh, priests were were trying to make, and they were looking at a lot of of texts that were coming in from China at the time. I think Zen, the import of of um, new texts from the Zen tradition, which were starting to happen around this time, played a large role. Um, and the, uh, many of the monks in Song's group were seeing that um, in... The chinese tradition uh there was a nuns community and mm. and this was something that was missing in japan so they talk a lot Aison talks a lot in his in his text and i look at his um commentaries but also at um, his autobiography and his um collection of sermons or short um s- sort of speeches that he gave uh at, on ritual occasions. And he talks a lot about the importance of having a sevenfold sangha in Japan. Mm. Um, and this was an idea that, that he had picked up from a lot of Chinese texts. Um, and four of the the groups in the Sevenfold Sangha were actually made up of women. Um, lay women, novice nuns, postulate nuns. So these are nuns who um, have gone past the novice stage but uh, are expected to uh, be novices for a bit longer to make sure that they are not pregnant before they're made into bikini, um and then fully ordained on. So we have these four groups and you only have three groups of monks because of men, because uh, they don't have to be screened for pregnancy. Um, and So, so Aeson realized that in order to, to fulfill his vision of having a sevenfold sangha in Japan a nun's order was necessary and, we, and that they needed fully ordained bhikkhuni, not just women who had taken novice or bodhisattva precepts but full-fledged bhikkhuni. Um, and so I think much of his interest in uh, ordaining nuns came from this notion that Japanese Buddhism wouldn't be authentic um, if nuns weren't brought in somehow. Whereas the group that was active at Hokkeji before Eison became involved in, in the revival there, Um, I don't think they were as interested in in these doctrinal concerns, Um, which is not to say that they weren't interested in doctrine at all. I mean, eventually, once they do uh, kind of join forces with Aesong, uh, they begin studying sutras with him. He lectures on these difficult commentaries at Hokkeji and so on. So they do eventually become interested in doctrine. um, But much of what they're doing at Hokkeji, especially before Aesong gets involved, is centered on these um, very localized devotional practices, and especially devotional practices um, centered on Empress Komyo. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they had created, before Aesong got involved at all, um, they had sort of put Hokkeji on the pilgrimage map. So uh, (laughs) around this time, it had become popular among um, elites living in, in the capital of Kyoto or heian It had been popular to, to go on all kinds of, of pilgrimages. And the, the one of the popular routes was, um, in Nara to go down to the city of the old capital of Nara and, um, to visit some of the, the old great temples from the Nara period. Um, and Hokage eventually comes, begins to show up in pilgrimage records that were being passed around, uh, on aristocrats during this time, um, and, and aristocrats of the early Kamakura period as well. Um, and uh, so once they're, they get into these, they manage to get into the uh, pilgrimage records or journals that are being passed around, um, stories about the miracles associated with Empress Komyo and so on um, begin to inspire more pilgrims to come to Hokeji. And so it seems that, that there was a group of women there who had... Um, managed to uh figure out how to attract pilgrims to Hokeji and they had had created a certain level of interest um among elites in Hokeji. Um,
0: right. They were already sort of there and 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 and, and doing their thing before Aeson uh came along and and, and revived a more uh, Orthodox <laughs> Um, right, what Eson
1: really, right, what Asan really did was to give these women the opportunity to take uh ordination or to to uh, receive precepts as bhikkhuni. um so it's many of these women had already taken uh novice precepts or bodhisattva precepts with local priests and they had already studied under local priests and so on, but what Asan was giving them was the opportunity to take. Um, a higher level of ordination to become fully ordained nuns. Um, I think that in terms of of the women's autonomy at the, at the convent, I don't think that it changed that much after their, their uh, alliance with, with ASL. And I think that even as they joined his movement, um, he pretty much let them uh, manage their daily affairs on their own. What he really offered them was the opportunity to take, to take, to uh, take a higher level of precepts, um, to participate in various rituals and uh, sermons, lectures, etc., that he and his his monks were hosting. Um, and um, sort of he, he, he enabled them to uh, associate themselves with the the momentum that his group was, was creating. I mean, he was from all accounts, a very charismatic religious leader and had created um, a lot of attention and had managed to um, create a lot of interest in the vineyard. He went on, he spent much of his life really on the road, um, preaching in the countryside Um, and drawing in new followers and so on. And during this time, he was a very uh, well-known religious figure and had quite a bit of visibility. Um, It's just that the Ritsu group did not uh, come to have... uh, a major presence in the contemporary period of, I think even by, by the Tokugawa period there, the group is not that well known. So today we don't think that this was a very important religious movement because we don't hear that much about it. But at the time it was, he was one of the major players in uh, the religious world of, of Kamakura Buddhism. Um, So I think they, the nuns had a lot to gain by association with him. They knew they would get more pilgrims coming to their, their monastery. They knew that they would, um, attract more interest if they were affiliated with a zone i think
0: right right and it really um this this relationship really speaks to this question of agency and 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 you mentioned the sort of dominant discourse of the an androcentric discourse in in, in japanese buddhism at the time uh that i think is is present in a lot of of, of buddhism in general um but this question of of uh you you mentioned previous scholarship generally tends to, to to portray these women as sort of being subjugated by the um, mm. you know patriarchal or misogynistic uh institutions um, but but you really show that there's uh many different kinds of agency and um And and how these women were able to to sort of run this convent on their own, as as you were just saying. Um, And I'm thinking mostly right now about um, the the, the one scholar you mentioned, um, Hosokawa, who has this argument about um, robes and the nuns doing monks' laundry um and as as sort of showing the relationship between them and um if you could just uh talk a bit more about that because i guess it's a very important point about how these women were able to to sort of be functional on their own within this this very androcentric kind of uh uh situation
1: Mm. yeah that's a good point i i think um but there's a there's a tendency in a lot of not just in Buddhist studies, but in a lot of religious studies to um, kind of focus on doctrines and on text when uh, looking at particular issues in a religion so and I, and this has been is an idea that has been thoroughly criticized and um, in many subfields is, is sort of no longer an issue. but I think one thing that's happened in the study i mean it, it still has this kind of uh, lingering. Uh, presence in the study of, of women in Buddhism, I think. Um, and this is still in the Japanese case as well. So uh, I think many scholars who are looking at uh, women in Buddhism in Japan sort of started with the text. Well, what do the Buddha sutras say about women? Um, what do the commentaries of uh, male priests in Japan say about women? We can look at these texts, kind of take out any uh any lines that talk about women or gender and from there understand what the relation between women and Buddhism was in this period and so on. Um, and while that that's important and we do learn something from that, um, you, we really have to look at, at what women were doing in particular places um, at particular times to, to understand this relationship. Um, because a lot of the nuns at hokkeji were not that interested in doctrine. Um, they, probably weren't that concerned with what monastic commentary said about the salvation of women or uh, what certain sutras said about the salvation of women. Not that that wasn't, as, wasn't important at all, but it wasn't the main focus of their daily practices. Um, and uh, so in the case of, of Hokkeji and looking at what the women were doing um on a on an everyday level, what kinds of rituals they were carrying out, how they were interacting with le- lay people, um, even how they were interacting with monks, we we see that a lot of those doctrines just aren't aren't really um, a part of the picture. They're not really what's how women are understanding their relationship to Buddhism or what it means to be Buddhist, what it means to um, to devote oneself to religious practice, and so on. Um, so I I think um, it's, it's in looking almost like at a different
0: conversation, right? I mean, they're not even, <laughs> as as you say, at one point, they're sort of talking past some of the discourse.
1: Yeah. So I think in, in many ways, the women really are talking past a lot of that, a lot of the discourse about, especially this notion that women have to be reborn as men in order to proceed along the Buddhist path. Um not that there there are some examples of women talking about that, but they're far and few between. And the Hokkeji materials do not engage that issue. Um, it seems to be that what they're really concerned about um, is devotional practices to komyo, um, carrying out rituals for the the community uh, right there around Hokage-ji, uh doing things for pilgrims and so on. Um, and that, that that just isn't the center of their practice. Um, and so I I think a lot of uh, what I try to do in the book is to um, to move away from this idea that uh, women or or anyone necessarily any lay person necessarily internalized what the content of Buddhist sutras and commentaries. Um, that if, if we're too focused on text and if we make the assumption that women internalize the discourses that we find in doctrinal text, then we're missing a lot of what's going on. And it's easy to make a lot of errors if we make that assumption that uh, what religious practices is, is about internalizing doctrines found in, in sutras and commentaries and so on. Um, and i think that that many of the the monks in the Saidaiji order which is the order that the hokage nuns were involved with that they were kind of struggling to put these things together i mean they were i don't know that they had internalized all these discourses either i think they had internalized them a lot more than the than the nuns had but i think they were still struggling to put together different discourses that they were finding in different buddhist texts i mean they were bringing in a lot of they were start beginning to pay attention to a lot of continental texts that um, maybe they hadn't studied uh, earlier because these were new texts or texts that um, were just starting to draw attention and so on. Um, so I, one thing I try to talk about in the book is that even the monks don't seem to, in the side order don't seem to have a, 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 um, what a fixed understanding of how to think about gender or how to think about including women in the order. On the one hand, they knew that they needed to include women in the order into the order in order to create the sevenfold sangha. Um, but on the other hand, they were aware of, of all this discourse that talks about the danger, the dangers of women. And so I think they were too struggling with, well, how do we incorporate women without being, um, without sort of falling prey to these problems associated with (laughs) women? Um,
0: how do we so them it, without being seduced by them, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, um, and so there are some interesting. I mean, there are interesting conversations that come up, like when uh, Jizen, the first abbess of the revived Hokeji, um invites. She apparently she seems to have invited uh, Aeson to come to Hokeji quite often because she she. Uh, probably looked up to him a lot as this very charismatic leader and so on. We don't have a lot of of, um, correspondence between them, but there are a few letters that have survived. Um, And there's one letter in which Aeson is responding to what appears to have been a request from Jizen that he come uh, and visit her at Hokgeji. And he sort of very politely tells her, because she's of a higher uh, higher status status, socially then he he tells her very politely that he's not going to be able to come and one of the reasons he gives is that uh it will look bad to people if it if it seems that we're too close and it seems to be hinting at this idea that um if if he's kind of hanging out with the nuns too much people might get the wrong idea (laughs) um you know he, he shouldn't be spending too much time especially in private with women and so on so he's very careful about uh how much time he spends with women, even though he wants to include them in his order, um, and so I think for that reason, uh, among several others, uh, he's very happy allowing the nuns at Hokeji to to have the kind of autonomy they had enjoyed before they became involved with him. I um, mean, they really seem to be running their seem to have been running their affairs on their own um, on on a day to day basis. Um, so I, I don't think that the the Saidaiji monks were very concerned about um, regulating the everyday affairs of women at Hokeji. That doesn't seem to be one of their, their major interests. And I think um, this has been, this sort of general trend has been noted by other people studying um, monastic communities of Buddhist women in, in other parts of the world uh, or other parts of Asia, that um, usually nunneries are. Uh, very autonomous in terms of their day-to-day affairs. Um, there may be this idea that monks are, that women are, that the nuns are to uh, answer to monks. And there there's of course this rule that nuns are to bow down to monks, um, regardless of, of their seniority. So even if a nun has been ordained for 30 years, she has to bow down to a monk who was just ordained yesterday. There, there is this idea um, but in terms of day-to-day affairs, the nunneries seem to have been very autonomous in, in much of the Buddhist world.
0: Right. So despite the, the patriarchal or, or androcentric rhetoric or, or, or institutions, there still seems to be a place for these, these communities to, uh, of women to have uh, a large degree of autonomy and, and a, cer- a certain kind of agency that sort of uh, complicates the picture. <laughs> So to speak. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think another another kind of bias that has emerged in a lot of Japanese scholarship um, is this notion that um, only someone who's really desperate would want to become a nun. Mm-hmm. So only someone who who can't manage to get married um, or who has faced some kind of terrible failure in the real world uh, would want to become a nun. It's
0: like the last option. Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting because people don't talk about monks that way, right? You don't think <laughs> you could only become a monk if you couldn't find a wife and you're really desperate. Um, and I you know, I think that that kind of, I think, of course, there there must have been cases like that, absolutely. But I think it's really um, arrogant and it, it reflects a lot of bias, I think, um, to assume that women who decide to become nuns in pre-modern japan must have done it because they weren't they couldn't find a, a proper mate um or something terrible had happened to them but i think what we find in the the Hokeji records is that these women talk about um nunhood or the the opportunity to become a nun as um a vocation as this is a chance to become a professional member of the clergy. This is a chance to study. This is a chance to have some kind of ritual authority and a chance to teach lay people and to um, interact with pilgrims. It's a chance to pursue some kind of religious devotion. Um, and so to dimi- to dismiss all of those possibilities and simply talk about it as, oh, these poor women um, is really short-sighted, I think. And and it's possible that many of the women at Hokeji did did initially enter the convent because of something, um, something not very positive had happened in their lives. But at least the way they talk about it, they managed to talk about it in a very positive way. And I think that some of the women probably did choose to become nuns because they were interested in, in uh, pursuing some kind of educational or academic training. And if, if you think about the larger landscape of pre-modern Japan, monasteries really were uh, the, the major educational institutions of the day. So in some ways, I like to, I like to talk to my students about um, monasteries in medieval Japan as being kind of colleges. I mean, this is your chance to go to college and, and uh, learn difficult philosophical text and things like that. Um, so I, I think it's really dismissive to assume from the beginning that uh, the nunneries were for, for women who couldn't, couldn't come up with anything better to do. Um, and, <laughs> Um <laughs> yeah I... some of it from contemporary japan from sort of the biases of contemporary japan, where a lot of the first scholars who had looked at this who had who had studied nunneries um were working from this kind of uh, assumption that in in modern japan uh this this kind of vocation would only be attractive to women who who couldn't get married i mean in that that when when we started having more women write about Japanese women write about nuns in the premodern period, they started coming up with very different interpretations, and many were angered by that kind of bias.
0: Right, it's sort of a weird, uh, you know, sexism masking as you know being sympathetic. Right, it's like uh, only women who can't get married will want to become nuns, which in and of itself is sort of a strange sort of sexism. While you're trying to make this argument yeah. that they're being victimized. <laughs>
1: right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there was also a kind of um, Marxist bias too. That religions are—I mean—a lot of a lot of the early religious studies scholarship in Japan was um, coming out of of a broader trend or interest in Marxist uh, approaches to history, and, and many scholars um, writing about religion say in the '80s and so on did kind of work from this notion that. Um, Religion fundamentally oppresses people, including women, or especially women, perhaps. But I think so. That was that was in there a little bit too. I think.
0: <laughs> well, we're we're coming up toward the end of our time together, so um, I'm going to ask the uh, traditional final question on our show, which is, um, what you are, what what is it that you're working on on now? What can we expect <laughs> from you in the future?
1: <laughs> um, well, I'm I'm now working on the spread of. Uh, a text known as the Blood Bowl Sutra, which I, I talk about a little bit in the epilogue of, of the Hokeji book. Um, this is a sutra that uh, spread in Japan somewhat late. Um, it, it didn't enter the discourse until some probably sometime in the 15th century. Um, and it is a, a very short sutra that says women are destined for a special hell made up of... of reproductive blood so uh menstrual blood and blood um shed during uh childbirth and uh, miscarriage and so on um and this cults to this sutra um became very popular during the Edo period um and uh I'm trying to understand how it spread at that sort of what the vehicles for its spread were, uh, why it became managed to become so popular so quickly once it was introduced. Um, it's a kind of discourse that we really don't see in, in earlier uh, in earlier periods in Japanese Buddhism. I mean, there there are these androcentric ideas that I talk about in the book, like the five obstacles and the, the thrice following and so on. But what we find in the Blood Bowl Sutra is much more, um, much more derogatory. I mean, this is a, a much uh, sort of um, more clearly sexist view of the female body, something that's... Uh, that we don't really find in the earlier text. So I'm trying to understand why it was that, that this took off in the period that it did. Um, and why women uh, were concerned about it, um, about this hell. There were many women who uh, participated in cults to the blood bowl, hell uh, in which they would buy talismans to prevent themselves from falling into the blood bowl. Hell um, would carry out particular rites uh, in association with this belief and so on. So that's what I'm looking at now.
0: And these women were from a wider spectrum. I mean, uh, for society they weren't just uh, nuns, but also lay people.
1: Yeah, I mean and it's especially popular it was especially uh, popular among lay people, mm-hmm. but there were um many uh Buddhist sects that uh, really propagated this belief. Um, Soto Zen priests would often um put copies of the sutra into uh, women's tombs. Um, they would also uh, sell talismans to women and so on. Um, the Jodo-shu uh, Jodo priests also propagated the belief and many uh, Jodo-shu priests gave sermons on uh, the Blood Bowl hell and so on. Uh, so we think most of those sermons were aimed at lay people.
0: Wow, it's it's really, it's it's just it, fascinating to see sort of the development of these ideas and how they spread throughout um, the history of Japan. And in your book, you mentioned, you know, and we were talking just today about how, you know, some of these ideas were not necessarily widely known. And, and it seems like as if some of them are, are spreading and developing over time. And it's just, it's a fascinating look at the, the history of Japanese Buddhist ideas. Um, thank you so much for, for talking with us today. Oh,
1: thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Um, and uh, I can highly recommend the book. So, for all the listeners, please <laughs> go out and buy it. <laughs> okay.
1: Thank you. That was very nice. <laughs>
0: Great. Uh, so, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Scott.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Lori Meeks, author of Hokage and the Reemergence of Female Monastic Orders in Pre modern Japan, for the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell.